open God's word for you and with you. Uh, had a great time in Los Angeles this week at the Shepherds Conference at Grace Community Church with thousands of pastors, uh, like-minded pastors, and catching up with uh, friends and from seminary and, and elsewhere. Uh, and it's, it's such a great time. They'll, I'm, I know they'll post the messages in the uh, week or weeks to follow, and uh, I'm sure they'll be a great encouragement to you as well. I encourage you to check those out. Um, it, I, I, I walk away so encouraged for many reasons, uh, one of which is, you know, as pastors get together and they talk, especially, you know, sometimes this, you see the same guys each year, uh, hey, how's it going? You know, how's your church? And, uh, you know, some guys are, are having a rough go. They're having challenges in their churches. And uh, so there's a bearing of burdens there and encouragement to, to guys and to, uh, you know, encourage them to press on, to be faithful, you maybe offer some wisdom for some challenging situations. Uh, it's such a joy, though, when you can show up and say, things are going great. We our church loves us, I think, you know, so much, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and we love the church, and uh, it's just so great, because that's just not the reality for, uh, for many guys out there, and they're trying to be faithful, but I am just so thankful to be able to uh, just speak of the Lord's work in our fellowship, and uh, how joyful it is to uh, be one of your pastors, and just very thankful, uh, so had a great time. It was great to hear John MacArthur preach. Um, he uh, had um, surgery recently in January and was unsure if he would get to preach. And so it was great to hear him close the conference, do a little Q&A. That was a great message to, to hear. Um, and uh, so that was fun as well. Um, I got back late last night, but um, thankful. I kind of did forget about daylight savings. So three hours California plus an hour um, so, uh, you know, I'll try and keep you awake, you know, you keep me awake, <laughs> no, we've got some great things to look at this morning. Let me, uh, pray, begin by a prayer, ask the Lord's blessing. We're not going to be in Luke this morning, we're going to take just a week off of Luke and, um, and be in the book of Joshua. Let me pray for our time. Father, we we praise you again, as we have already this morning. In particular, we praise you for the word of God, for the scriptures given to us, breathed out by you, given to us through the dual authorship of, of your spirit and the men you moved to write that which you desired. These are the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, we ask you to speak through your word as it is explained. Uh, give me help to explain it accurately and uh, giving the proper sense and its significance. We pray that Christ would be exalted. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give calm and peace to our hearts as we go through distressing times, as our hearts uh, grow anxious for various reasons that you would grant peace, uh, and a peace that is derived from and grounded in the good news of what Christ has accomplished. We have great reason for hope, for 
the Lord Jesus, remaining what he was, truly God, became what he was not, truly man, so that he might be the representative for us to stand before God and men, to be our advocate with you, Father, and to be a substitute for sinners, that your just and holy wrath might be satisfied in him, and that his perfect righteousness might be counted to us by faith alone. Lord, it is by this means that we have peace with you, and that you not only objectively bring us to be at peace with you, but you then work in our hearts this uh, growing peace uh, of God that guards us through our lives. And we pray that as we think about these things, we think about the peace that you bring, the calm that you bring, despite the fears around us, that you would in a fresh way calm our hearts and satisfy us in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 333 BC, in the land of Gordium, the ancient capital of Phrygia, there was a chariot. This chariot was tied to a pole with an intricate knot that none could untie. The chariot was said to have been Gordius's chariot, the ancient founder of this city. As the legend went, the one to untie the knot would conquer Asia. On his march through Asia Minor, Alexander the Great stopped in Gordium, and he tried his hand at untying the knot. After trying unsuccessfully for some time to untie it, Alexander famously pulled out his sword and cut the knot in half. The Gordian knot, as we know it. The legend is often used to illustrate how a seemingly difficult and impossible problem can be dealt with simply or through some other obvious means. Fear can often feel like a Gordian knot inside of us. Fears can feel like a knot in our stomach. Fear can seem like something difficult and perplexing that it is hard to solve. It can also at times be paralyzing and cause us to feel as if we are tied up and unable to function in the way God would have us to. Sometimes we don't even know why we are fearful. We cannot pinpoint the reason. If you're prone to fear, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The oracle said that whoever could untie the Gordian knot would conquer Asia, which is what Alexander went on to do. In the beginning, though, of the book of Joshua, Joshua is also just before a great conquest, a great campaign to conquer Canaan, the land God had promised to Israel. But the first impediment in his way is the knot of fear. Before he can move forward in conquest, leading the people, he must learn to fear not by cutting through the knot of fear. But just as Alexander used a sword to cut the knot, so we must approach our fears with another sword. 
It is the sword of God's sufficient word that we turn to this morning to cut through our fears and free us to function as God would have us. So if you're not there already, please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. And we will read this text. The book of Joshua, if you are not familiar recently with this, and studying it, reading it, let me remind you that it really divides pretty smoothly into two parts. There is half of the book focused on conquering the land, and the second half, dividing the land. So in chapters 1 to 12, Israel is conquering the land. They're going through, they have a campaign, they're defeating their enemies, and then God divides the land among the tribes of Israel. But this is the beginning. This is the beginning of the book. Let's follow along as I read Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, Yahweh said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, towards the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that Yahweh your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you, saying, Yahweh your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until Yahweh gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that Yahweh your God is giving them. 
Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, gave you beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may Yahweh your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This is the word of the living God. Fear not or do not fear are some of the most frequent commands in Scripture. Joshua and Israel are facing fearful circumstances. Israel is in a time of transition, and transition itself often brings anxiety and fears. Their leader Moses, for the last 40 years, has just died. And they're about to enter enemy territory. They are about to enter this land and take it and establish a new home. You know, they say like starting a new job and moving to a new place are great, uh, often stressors. <laughs> and so Joshua has taken on a new job and they're moving to a new home. And he's also having to lead all of these people. But notice the encouraging command that comes up four times in this chapter. Be strong and courageous. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 9. Verse 18, you know, repetition is what? The key to learning. The key to learning is what? Repetition, right? So uh, this is repeated for us so that we get the point. And verse 9 says it another way. Do not be frightened or dismayed. Coming at it from a different angle. What do these mean? What, is, what does it mean to be strong and courageous here? Well, strong is really a synonym for courageous, Courageous means to be resolved or to be committed. Courage is the resolve to act no matter the circumstances. And really, it's undergirded by convictions, convictions that have taken root. The frequent repetition of this command indicates that we can be quick to forget it and thus need continual reminders from God in our circumstances. I'll say this more than once in different ways, but I think that's very instructive for us and applicable as we think about fears in our own hearts. Uh, There isn't a silver bullet to apply this principle and you'll never fear again. The very fact that the command is so frequently repeated tells us we need to hear this time and again and be reminded of some of the same things as new fears arise in our hearts. Yes, the Lord grows us, and we may mature more in an area where we feared more, but we will continue to struggle with this, and yet God will continue to give us greater and greater trust in him as we grow. But how is it that Joshua was going to be strong and courageous and not fear? Is God just calling him to whistle in the dark, as we might say? To pretend to not be afraid? 
How is it that we are to conquer our fear and be strong and courageous in the midst of the circumstances that we find ourselves in? What is it that can establish our strength and give us resolve and courage for whatever God brings into our lives? This is what we want to see this morning in Joshua chapter 1. God gives Joshua and us, by extension, the basis for why we ought not to be fearful, but rather to be strong and courageous. I think you could summarize many of our fears into some categories. This isn't exhaustive, but maybe representative of many of the fears that we have. We often fear the unknown, we fear being alone, and we fear failing. A lot of our fears fit into those buckets. There are more, I'm sure you could think of, but these are somewhat representative. We fear the unknown, we fear being alone, we fear failing. Interestingly enough, each of these categories of fear are addressed in Joshua chapter 1. And each of these fears, God provides Joshua and us a comforting truth to address that particular fear. Now, what's interesting is Joshua is on the precipice of the land. He's about to enter a military campaign. He's a general. He's going to lead the people into the land. And you would think, well, how would, how would God prepare such a man to enter this battle, a military campaign? Well, you would think, well, maybe he would give Joshua the best military strategy. Well, he doesn't in the sense of what we would think of militarily. Instead, God gives him strategies for facing his fears and being strong and courageous. You'll see there's a lot of unconventional warfare in the book of Joshua. It's as if God is saying, I don't even need you guys to do this, but I want you to just be a part of it. You're like, march around the city, don't do anything, and then blow your trumpets, and boom, the walls come down. You know, uh, massive boulders are going to fall from the sky and destroy your enemies. I mean, just all of these things that God does. And so he's not so much preparing Joshua for, all right, here's a good tactic here and there. He's preparing his heart for this so that there is faith and belief as they go into the land. Don't, don't forget that this generation is the second generation that came out of the wilderness. And in the book of Numbers, which the men we just studied, we, we were reminded that that first generation refused to go into the land because they were afraid of the people in the land despite the promises of God. We don't want to go in. And these spies go in, and the majority of them say, well, no, they've got giants there. <laughs> the sons of Anak. <laughs> and, and two men stand up in faith and say, no, God has promised, and that's Caleb and Joshua. And so... There was great fear, and so God is preparing this generation now to go in. Because the prior generation, God had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until they died out. Like I say, God put them in screensaver mode. You know, do you remember the old Windows screensaver? It bounced around. Everyone, if you just like got bored and you were watching it at the doctor's office, and you're like, is it going to make it in the corner? Will it ever hit the corner? 
And it would get so close, and then it would, yeah, it didn't hit the corner. That was Israel. Like, are they going to get into the promised land? Oh, so close. Oh, nope, they're going, wandering around some more. And that's what God did to that generation. And so this is that second generation. And you know what's, you know what's really interesting? That first generation, one of their fears was for their children. And they were thinking, well, what about our kids? There's all these people in the land. They're so, they're so big. And our kids, here's what God did. He killed that generation, the parents, and he brought the kids into the land. Their fears were unfounded. And so God is going to remind Joshua and the, this generation that entered the land not to fear like their parents, but to trust God. And he gives them strategies. There's five strategies here in chapter one for remaining strong and courageous in fearful times so that you may continually be able to cut through the knot of fear. Five strategies for remaining strong and courageous in fearful times, so that you may continually be able to cut through the knot of fear. We'll consider number one. The first strategy for remaining strong and courageous in fearful times is to remember the plan of God. Remember the plan of God in verses one and two. Look there again. Verse one, after the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, Yahweh said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Joshua picks up right where Deuteronomy leaves off. In chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, you have recorded the death of Moses. Joshua is now assuming the leadership over Israel. Joshua 1, 1 to 9 really is God's commission of Joshua for his task. We might say it's like his ordination. It simply says in the beginning of Joshua, Moses is dead. This is devastating news for Israel. I mean, just this is like the front page. Like, what's the headline? The front page news. Moses is dead. He's been leading this generation of Israelites for 40 years. Or leading Israel for 40 years. He just finished preaching his last sermon series, the book of Deuteronomy, preparing Israel on the plains of Moab to enter into the land. But now he is gone. His absence must have been strongly felt, vacuum in his absence. And no doubt there would have been fear for the future as this great prophet has passed from the scene. And yet Moses himself ends by saying, there's a prophet like me who's coming. And that prophet would be the Lord Jesus Christ. He would be a prophet greater than Moses. He would be a prophet who not only was one who would speak the word of God, but who is the word of God, who is God of very God, the angel of Yahweh. But the people have this loss from Moses. A few people remember the president after Abraham Lincoln or the prime minister after Winston Churchill, or the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle after Charles Spurgeon. These towering figures, these great leaders, their shadow is so large that it casts. A thought could have been in some minds, who can possibly follow Moses? 
Who can lead us? Who can fill Moses' shoes? Moses was called the servant of Yahweh. He's the first person to have this title. Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. Joshua had been Moses' assistant prior to this. And it, it was these experiences with Moses that really prepared Joshua for this task that he was going to do. I mean, consider some of what Joshua had witnessed in his life up to this point. Joshua's first battle in Exodus 17, 8 to 16, is where God clearly shows that he gives victory uh, in, as people are dependent upon him. Remember, they're holding up Moses' arms, and uh, it's showing that whenever Moses' arms go down, they start losing, and so they hold his arms up, and Josh, you know, Joshua's leading this battle, and they're holding his arms up, and it's showing that God is the one giving them victory. Joshua's learning. He's learning the way Yahweh works in battle. Israel means God fights. And it's a God fights for Israel. It's, it's God is going to fight their battles. That's part of their identity. Joshua's encounter with God at Sinai uh, in, in Exodus 24 is, is pivotal for him too as he sees the holiness of God. Then Joshua goes into the land to spy it out. He's seen this land. He's been there. He knows about the enemies in the land. He knows their size. He knows the, the greatness of the land as well. Joshua's also been commissioned by Moses in Numbers 27, Deuteronomy 31. God has prepared him for this time. But still, he's no Moses. Notice the way God, though, addresses Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, Jordan River, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. It's like God's plans are not slowed down in the least when his servant dies. Joshua needed to be reminded that though Moses was gone, Yahweh remained the same. And God's plans would continue on no matter what. God is not limited in his power by the servants that he uses. No servant of God is indispensable for God's purposes. Servants of God are tools. They're used. In fact, their success is because of God's work through them. One writer said this, Yahweh's fidelity does not hinge on the achievements of men, however gifted they may be nor does it evaporate in the face of funerals or rivers. We may fear the unknown, but God has a plan for the future and is bringing it to pass, working it out. Nothing will thwart the good plans that God has and has ordained to come to pass. Not even the death of a great leader How does the knowledge of God and that he has a plan help to calm your fears and to stabilize your heart when there's fears about the unknown? Maybe the problem is that your vision has become somewhat myopic and so focused upon this problem, this issue. Maybe it's something that hasn't even happened that may never happen but has consumed your vision. You've got tunnel vision focus on this hypothetical or maybe a real thing. Maybe you're looking at only one picture in a mosaic 
and need to step back and see more of the big picture of what God is doing, how he is working his plan out. This is why we need to have a good biblical theology of the storyline of the Bible and not just cherry pick, you know, verses out for whatever. Uh, the Bible's not like a, just a rule book for life. It is a, a, the way in which we know God. Uh, yes, we learn about how to please God, but really this book is to help us see what is God doing in the world from beginning to end. This is also why it's important to have a, uh, a, a clear understanding of what the Bible says about the last things, about eschatology. It's not just a throwaway thing. I mean, what book have you read where you started it and then you got to the end and go, you know, I'm kind of good. You know, I don't need to know the end. <laughs> uh, no, we need to know where things are headed, not only where they came from, and we need to be clear because this helps us to say, what's the plan? What is God doing? Macro, what is the big plan that God is doing? Even if I'm just a small part of it, it gives me comfort to know God is moving things along. When you feel the knot of fear in your stomach, you need to remember the plan of God. The second strategy for remaining strong and courageous in fearful times is to recall the promises of God, or we might say even better, rely on the promises of God. Rely on the promises of God. We see this in verses three to the middle of verse five. Look there, it says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. God is calling Joshua to go into the land, to take the land, because God has already given them the land. It's yours, but you need to take it. I mean, he says, God says to them, I am giving to you. The land I am giving to you. It's already theirs. It's a done deal. But it doesn't mean they can go on vacation and it's all done. No, they, they have a responsibility to play. It's like, you know, Christmas morning and there's all these presents under the tree. I know we're far away from Christmas. It's March. Sorry. You know, hopefully you're not singing Christmas songs this early. But, uh, but, but you, there's names on the presents. They've been purchased for that individual. And yet, you know, they sleep in. If they don't open the present, it's not theirs. I mean, it's theirs, but they got to come down and open it and take possession. That's this idea. God is, has their name on it, on this land. In fact, he has each of the tribe's names allotted in the latter half of this book, but they first must go in and obey God taking this. I mean, think about, just, let's just stretch this a little bit to the reality of the gospel. Christ has died for a people, and his death for them ensures their belief in him, and he has this people. His names are on his hands. Our names are on his hands, written on his heart. And, and yet, we must appropriate Christ by faith, right, to experience uh, the peace of God, the peace with God, Right? We are his enemies. His wrath abides upon us until we trust in Christ, appropriate the uh, perfect atonement that he has made and his perfect life he has earned for us. 
And so we take hold even of the offer of the gospel by faith. Trust in Christ alone brings freedom from the fear of death and the condemnation of God. It grants the freedom from an accusing conscience. I mean, this is a great starting place. If we're thinking about relying upon the promises of God, God is giving them promises that he's made about entering the land that he has, it's theirs, he has given it to them. But God has given us promises as well. He's given us many promises and God calls us to rely upon those promises. Like I say, sometimes when, when God gives you a what, you don't have to know the why, you just only have to trust the who. <laughs> uh, not the band, the who, but you know, God. <laughs> uh, the, you, you, he tells you, this is what I'm going to do. You don't have to know how he's going to accomplish it all, all the mechanisms, you just have to trust him, rely upon his person. You know, we, we like to remind ourselves that when it comes to the gospel, it's not the amount of your faith, it's the object of your faith. If you have the right object of faith, uh, of trust, then you have a solid ground for hope. And the only object for our faith in the promises of God is the person of Christ. Because only he can deliver us from the condemnation of God. Only God can bear the wrath of God and survive. And only man can stand in the place of man as a substitute. So Christ, as the God-man, stands in the place. This is what Job, the first book of the Old Testament, said. Job hoped for this God-man mediator, this one who could stand in the place. This is his dilemma. He's like, God, if only, if only there could be someone who could put their hand on God, but they would have to be God, and they could put their hand on man, but they would have to be man, so I don't know how that could work, but if they could just be that person and be like kind of like a mediator, uh, some translations call it an umpire, <laughs> you know, like it's just this go-between uh, to settle the dispute, and what Job was looking for was Christ, a mediator, who would bring to pass all the promises of God, and Jesus said not one part of the law would pass away. One part of the law or the prophets would pass away, but all would come to pass. He is the one who ensures that all of the promises of God come to pass. Paul says that every promise of God finds their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He ensures that every promise, whether it was a promise related to his first coming or a promise that's related to his second coming, he is the person who ensures that it comes to pass. And so he is the only proper object of our faith. And so it starts there with relying upon that promise of God that God is for us in Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, whatever is coming at you, whatever is causing anxieties and fears, enemies around you or just circumstances, what a great comfort. God is for me. Therefore, nothing can successfully be against me. But only God can be, only, God can only be for you in Christ. If you are not in Christ by faith, God is against you. He is against you. Eternal life is only to be found in Jesus Christ and him rightly understood as truly God, truly man, perfect life, substitutionary death, glorious, victorious resurrection. He is our hope. He is the one we rely upon. We've pointed out in Joshua already that the spies would not go in for, because of their lack of faith. They, they did not believe. They had unbelief. 
They wouldn't do it. They didn't believe his promises. And so here, God is reminding Joshua, he's given them the land, he's made these promises, trust me, take me at my word. Look at how sure the fulfillment of this promise is in verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. God's power will ensure the fulfillment of his promises. Jeremy Taylor, he said, It is impossible for that man to despair who remembers that his helper is omnipotent. It is impossible for that man to despair who remembers that his helper is all-powerful. If this God is for you, how could you despair? The land God is giving to them is basically uh, from where Joshua is standing all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. He really gives the four corners of the map, west, east, south, north, west, the Mediterranean Sea coast, east, the Euphrates River, far to the east, south, the wilderness, over to the Nile of Egypt, and then north into Lebanon. Now, Israel never fully possessed all of this land, uh, the, the full spectrum of the land that's, that's described in Genesis. They did get uh, much of it, and in Judges, we see, like, Joshua, we see God is faithful to give them the land that he promised, but there's still work to do, and Judges is really the story of Israel's failure to complete the work and driving out the people, and then, like, Ruth is this little, like, footnote to it, the trilogy that says there were still godly Israelites, the remnant in Israel, despite the wickedness of the time of the Judges, everyone doing what was right in their own eyes, but, but they never got to possess all of this land. It surely will be theirs in the future when Christ returns. But we see God begin to fulfill this promise to them. And time never changes the reliability of God's promises because God does not change. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? There's no expiration date on God's promises, like eggs or milk. No. If it doesn't happen by this date, then it won't happen. <laughs> now, God's promises are certain. What are some of the promises that you can hold on to that will make you strong and courageous in fearful times? Well, the foundation has to be your hope in Christ. You have to start there. But as a believer, there's many great promises God has made to us. The promise of entering heaven, your final rest, and then looking forward to the new heavens and new earth and the resurrection of your body. Or Jesus' promise to return for his church. I mean, all of these promises and more. And what a great study. A pastor friend of mine once said, I'm just going to read the Bible this year and have a notebook and write down every promise in the Bible and just have this like promise book. He's probably like, you know, it's like the Bible's like this and his thing was probably like, like that too. <laughs> it's like just about as long. There's so many promises God has made. Though these promises may take time to see fulfillment, they do not have an expiration day. They will come to pass. Psalm 94, verse 19. Psalm 94, 19 says this. When the cares of my heart are many. It's like they're multiplied. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. 
your consolations cheer my soul. You could just even say, your promises cheer my soul. The command to be strong and courageous continues throughout the book of Joshua, not only in chapter one, but throughout. And what you'll notice is that it is grounded and based upon God's promises. It's not just, hey, just be strong and courageous. He then will ground it that God has promised. Just take a note, a look at eight, verse one. Yahweh said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. So he's saying, don't be afraid because why? I've given you their land. Chapter 10, verse eight. Chapter 10, verse eight. Yahweh said to Joshua, do not fear them for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Don't fear, here's why. Don't fear, here's a promise. Verse 25, same chapter. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For, that's a reason, thus Yahweh will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And in chapter 11, verse six, Yahweh said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So he just continues to remind them of reasons to undergird their hope. So this is instructive for us because when, when we give our own hearts uh, counsel and as we try to give others counsel in their fears in a gracious and patient way, we, we ought to think of what promises would encourage this person or my heart particularly right now. Um, what would be a, an encouraging promise to remind them of, given their circumstance? Because it's helpful, it's instructive that God often doesn't just say, you know, stop worrying or don't fear or be strong positively, but then he grounds it in some promise that he's made. And so we ought to do the same for our own hearts. Psalmist certainly does that, Psalm 42. Oh, why are you downcast? So why so disturbed within me? Hope in God. And then he begins to give reasons why he should hope in God. We ought to do the same. It's like Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you know, we often uh, talk to ourselves, or um, we, we ought to speak to ourselves more than we listen to ourselves, right? We're like, there's a constant voice in your head. I mean, there is in mine. Uh, and it's like you, telling you things and thinking through situations, and he's saying, don't just go be passive. Talk to yourselves. No, this is what's true. That's not true. Here is what is true. These are the reminders we need time and again. And it is trusting the promises of God that makes one strong and courageous and fearless. So when you feel the fear, the knot of fear in your stomach, recall and rely upon the promises of your omnipotent God. The third strategy that he gives for remaining strong and courageous in fearful times is to rest in the presence of God. Rest in the presence of God. We pick it up in verse five, in the middle of verse five. He says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And then verse nine, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. Verse 17, same. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may Yahweh your God be with you as he was with Moses. 
I think a great fear we sometimes have is being alone. And here God enables strength and courage through his enduring presence. God is everywhere, no doubt, but there's this special presence of God with his people that he is encouraging here. His presence to bless and to be with his people. James Montgomery Boyce wrote this, Joshua would lead the people into battle knowing they would be invincible as long as God continued on their side. If you, if you remember in Numbers, the first generation, the spies go in, they come out of the land, and most of them go, oh, it's too much, too much. And Joshua and Caleb encouraging the people to go in, and God tells them, all right, you're not gonna go in, and you're gonna die in the wilderness. And then there's a group of them who go, okay, okay, we'll go in, we'll go in. <laughs> if we're gonna die, we'll, we'll, we'll go in. And he says, no, don't go in, you're gonna die. I'm not going with you. My presence is not going with you. And what do they do? They go in anyway, and they lose, right? Here, God is, it's the opposite. God is saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. And it gives great encouragement. Just as God had been with Moses, he would be with Joshua. Listen to some of these verses in, in Scripture, encouraging us, grounding us in the presence of God. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, and you think, what would you say at this point? You know, be content, love of money. What would, you know, what, what, what has he said? Well, here's what he said. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, I'm with you. I'm present with you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is how he grounds the people in Hebrews. And then, of course, the gospel of Matthew is bracketed with the presence of God. In Matthew 121, there's the promise of Emmanuel, our namesake, uh, God with us. The Messiah is God with us. Another indication, he is the God-man, right? He is God with us. Lord Jesus. And then the gospel of Matthew ends in Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you always. How can Jesus be with us always? Well, because he is God of very God. He shares the divine essence, the Father and the Spirit, and therefore his omnipresence to bless is with us wherever we are. One writer once said this, a great line. I love it. He says, where God is, where God is, a spider web is like a wall. And where God is not, a wall is like a spider web. <laughs> where God is, a spider web, it's like a wall, a brick wall. Can't get through. But you can put up your wall. You can, you know, iron plate it without God. It's like a spider web. Whatever fearful circumstance you are in or will be in, God is present with you, dear Christian. At school, at work, at home, in your room, at church, when you're sharing the gospel, there's some fear. God is present with you to strengthen you and enable you. I think one of the most practical ways to activate your awareness of God's presence 
is prayer. You talk to this God. <laughs> you call out to him, which implies, I know this is like basic ABCs, it implies that you believe he's there. You believe that he's with you. And you want to draw near to him. So activate your awareness in your circum- of, of God's presence in your circumstances by talking to him. And this is exactly what Paul tells us to do in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4. And notice how the, the counsel he gives is very much in line with the counsel that Joshua is being given. In chapter 4, it's almost like Paul read Joshua, you know. Philippians 4 Verse 5 says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. He says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Just notice this, this order. The Lord is at hand. What does that mean? God is present. He's with you. What's the result then? Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. How do, you, how do I do it though? How do I activate the presence of God in my mind? Not that you make him there. You make yourself aware uh, and remind your heart that he's there. Well, you pray. You, you, you praise him. You ask him. You thank him. And that makes you, your heart aware. Yes, God is with me. He is at hand. And so this is the presence of God that is with us that we need to be reminded of in our in our fears. When you feel the knot of fear in your stomach, rest in the presence of God. Fourth strategy is for remaining strong, courageous, and fearful times is to rehearse the precepts of God. Rehearse the precepts of God in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Another one of our fears is often failure. Failure, whatever, in whatever area it may be. Here God reveals to us the way of success. But this is a God-defined success. Moses had received the law and given it the law to Israel, and now Joshua is called to make it central in his life. The law is one way to refer to the first five books of the Bible, and Joshua is the sixth book, <laughs> in the order at least. Uh, and so it also just means instruction, Torah. And this was Joshua's Bible, the, the first five books. Deuteronomy 17, 16 to 18 tells us about the king's Bible, if you will. The king was to have a copy that was made uh, of the law of God for himself personally, and it should be overseen by the priest so that he did it right. And he's supposed to have this book to study the law for himself. Psalm 1 is also the entry to the Psalter, and it talks about meditating on the law, connections to the king. And of course, there's lots of messianic connections as well to, to Christ who would have the law written on his heart, meditating upon it, knowing the scriptures. This is the same here. Joshua's to have the law. He's not a king, but he's the leader of the people at this time. And he's to derive his strength from the word of God, his knowledge and obedience of the word. 
Notice the, the, the command is intensified in verse 7. He says, be strong and very courageous. And God is telling Joshua and you that the fuel for courage and strength is the written word of God. Or to say it another way, the fires of fear are put out by the water of the word of God. He needs to be careful to do everything that God has commanded him to do, written in the word. He's not to deviate from any way, in any way from God's word. And there's such a primacy here of the word of God because it touches every aspect of Joshua's life. His mouth, his mind, and his actions. Notice his mouth. He's not to de- it's not to depart from your mouth. You talk about the word of God, Joshua. His mind. Meditate on it day and night. It's like a mutter. Uh, quietly to yourself. And it, it's to be in his actions that you might do everything written. This day and night expression is not like, it, it's more like every time, right? It's, it's like looking at the poles and it, it means everything in between. So he's not saying like, make sure you have your devotions in the morning and also at night. He's really saying, you should always be thinking about the word of God. It should always be in your mind all the time. I'm kind of a coffee guy, but I, I do like tea from time to time, just because I don't want to have caffeine at night. I like a hot drink sometimes. Not in the summer here, of course, but, uh, but you know, when it's cold out and you, uh, and you get your, your cup of tea. Well, it, this is a great illustration uh, that many have used of, of how the Word of God should permeate our lives, right? You, I like my tea stronger. Sometimes you can put two tea bags in and, uh, and you just let it sit in the, in the hot water and it permeates through. If you just drop it in for a second and pull it out, it's still like water, you know, but the longer you let it seep, the more it permeates and the more flavor there is in the water. And it's the same with our study of God's word. The, the more we let it seep in our minds, the more that we let it uh, permeate our minds, the more it's going to uh, season our lives and our minds and our thinking with a biblical worldview. It's going to add sweetness to our lives. Boyce writes this, it is only as the word of God gets into our minds and begins to become part of our normal day-to-day reasoning and thinking that we begin to act differently and thereby make a difference. Now, unless you think this is just for Joshua, this command to meditate on the word is repeated in Psalm 1, like we said, Malachi 4.4. It's, it's just for the individual believer, as well as for the leaders, especially for the leaders. You think, okay, Joshua's going on this military campaign. What would you expect to be on his desk? You know, like maybe a knife, maybe a compass, you know, manly stuff, like a leather pouch or something. I don't know. And, uh, and, uh, and then you would expect there to be maps, right? Okay, strategizing. But he's supposed to have the word of God on the table to guide him. That is what's to be primary, We might say that success and prosperity, according to God, is the ability to live a life pleasing to God no matter what the circumstances. Success as God defines it is to please God whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. When God's definition of success becomes your definition of success, you will stop worrying about accomplishing all of your goals and fulfilling all of your dreams. You'll be freed from the pursuit of perfection in the world's eyes and seek to be pleasing to God by being faithful, whatever he brings. 2 Corinthians 5.9, we make it our aim, whether we're in the body or away, to please him. We make it our aim to please him. The measure of your life 
is not what college you go to, what job you have, how much you make, how well behaved your children are, how well your retirement funds are going, how nice your house is. No, that is not the measure of life and success. It is to know God and to having been positionally been made righteous to then pursue a life of righteousness that's pleasing to God. Be faithful where God has placed you. Be careful not to make an idol out of your dreams. Another just small point of application, when you're faithful to live out God's word, your conscience is clear. What better than a clear conscience? I mean, there's a lot of fears that come, and this is, I'm not, hear me right, I'm not saying any fear you have is the result of a, an, an unclear conscience. I'm saying there are a lot of people whose fears, though, are because they have a guilty conscience, like even Christians, and so they're scared. You know, it's like the guilty flee when no one's pursuing. There's like an old story where uh, some old writer, and he wrote to like five of his friends and says, all is known, flee at once. He just wrote this like telegram to them, and they all left town, <laughs> and he didn't even say what they did. He was just doing a prank on them. Why did they leave? Because they had guilt in their heart. They were, they were, they know, they know what no one else knows, and so they left. You know, whether that's true or not, it illustrates the point. There's a paranoia about people's lives when they are guilty, because they think people know when they don't know, and they're like, oh, I think they know what I did. Just get it out in the open. He who conceals his sins does not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes his sins finds mercy. That is one way we are freed from Fear is the fear of an accusing conscience that comes from that. So we are to remember the plan of God, rely on the promises of God, rest in the presence of God, and rehearse the precepts of God. And finally, when you feel the knot of fear in your stomach, fifth strategy to remain strong and courageous in fearful times is to recruit the people of God. To recruit the people of God. I'm not going to read that last section again. We read in the beginning. But what is happening here is that, and most people would skip this part uh, because it's like, oh, it's just kind of like these two and a half tribes. Uh, I don't know. You know, let's just focus on the meditating part. But this is really helpful for us. Joshua has been commissioned by God, and he commands the people of God to prepare themselves to cross the Jordan into the land. He reminds also the men of the two and a half tribes who've already received their portion to join him. So what happened was they conquered Sihon and Og, so you have the Jordan Rivers here. Okay, I'm going to do it this way because it's going to be confusing. You have the Jordan Rivers here. They're on the east side. The land of Canaan is on the west side. And I know you're not supposed to turn your back in public speaking, but, uh, but they're over here. And two and a half tribes already have been allotted portions of land that they've defeated. But God said in Numbers, but this doesn't mean you, you're, you're free from fighting when we go into the land. You guys still have to come with us and fight and so the, there was this thing like, well, if we give you land now, are you guys going to like bug out on us when it's time to fight? They're like, no, we're going to fight. And so this is a reminder of that. He's saying, hey, guys, remember what you said. Don't bail on us now. Leave your wife and kids, but you guys come. And once, we're, once we've defeated the land or defeated the enemies, then you can return across the Jordan and enter into your inheritance. But you've got to fight with us. And so that's really what he's calling them to do here. But there's an important uh, theme that we see in the book from this. There's divine initiative and human responsibility. God is giving the land, but they must take it. They must go in. I mean, God doesn't need more of Israel to defeat the land. It's not like he's saying, if we don't have these two and a half tribes, we're going to lose. Are you kidding? 
I mean, Israel never like dies until I, because Achan steals the plunder. They, they don't have any casualties. They go in, God knocks the walls down, and they just clean up. They're the cleanup crew. And uh, God is sending you know, plagues. He's keeping the sun so that they can fight through the day. And it's, he's doing all these incredibly miraculous things, and he does it in other times as well. In fact, in, in Judges, he says to Gideon, you guys have too many people. You need to whittle this down because I want the glory. And so he doesn't need more people. So what is going on? Why is he saying, you guys have to fight with us? It's not because God needs them. It's for the unity of God's people. They are all to conquer the land together. Also, though, we see that, yes, God is going to do what he's going to do, but he wants to use them. He wants to include them in his purposes. I mean, how true for us as well. God can act however he wants. God has power. He doesn't need to use us, but he, he's pleased to use us. But I think uh, uh, it's related to the fears here. There's something important in this section that we could easily miss. Because when he recruits them, what do they say back to him? They say exactly what has already been said to him. They say to Joshua, be strong and courageous. They repeat the same line. And that's so instructive because not only do we constantly need to hear these same things over and over again, but we need to hear it from the people of God. And so there's this mutual encouragement that we are not alone, that God is with us, yes, but his people are with us and they are telling us the truth as well. We need people to come alongside us, encourage us, and remind us what we do know already and to say, hey, brother, be strong, be courageous. I know you've heard it. But I want to say it too. Maybe the knot of fear may be so overwhelming and restraining for you that you don't even feel like you can lift the sword of the spirit to free yourself from it. Like you're like, Robert, I feel like when I have the knot of fear, I can't even do these things. I, I, can't, I can't remember these principles. Well, then this is why you need others to come alongside you and be in your life so that they say, let me carry the sword for you. Let me remind you of these principles. Let me remind you of the truth and walk with you through this until you're strengthened. We need each other. We need each other. I had the opportunity this, this week to talk to a, a dear pastor friend and just challenges he's going through and just to give a word of encouragement to see like the emotion in that. It's like, wow, the burdens that some people are carrying and just to say a small word of encouragement and to see the massive effect that it has upon someone who's really having a hard time. But that's how God works. You just never know how God may use a word that you speak of encouragement to another person that they just need to hear. When you feel the knot of fear in your stomach, recruit the people of God. Like we said, this message will not be the silver bullet. Well, you'll go away and you'll never fear again. After all, this challenge of fear not comes up time and again through this chapter, through the book of Joshua, through the rest of the Bible, reminding us that we need to hear this time and again. But the truths in this text are the strategies to continually take up and cut down the fear, the knot of fear. The world has fears just as you and I do, but the strategies of the world will fail to untangle the knot of fear, just like all the others were not able to get the Gordian knot undone. We have the sword that can cut through the knot of fear and free us to function as God would have us. So take the sword of the Spirit and apply its strategies to the knot of fear so that you may fear not. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you would give us your word, that you would be concerned to give us peace, to calm our hearts. You would deal with the greatest issue to our fears, our sin, so that we might be at peace with you and that we might know a lasting peace, a growing peace. Lord, there's various fears, no doubt, here, anxieties that come and go in this room. And we've talked about a lot, but Lord, just minister your word, give them hope, help them encourage one another, and may we be a community that does that together. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Help us this week to continue to trust in you. And Lord, even as we apply these things in a kind of bumbling way at times and uh, forgetting quickly what we learn, would you, by your spirit, be pleased to refresh our minds with the word of God and encourage our hearts by these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.